Well, good evening. Good to see you. We're, we're glad you came back. And, um, you know, uh, tonight we're going to do number two on your, your selection. Remember I, I told you to select two? Well, this is the second one. They got the second most amount of votes. And so we'll, we're going to cover this aspect of, of how, um, how the design of the, of the universe points to someone who created it. So that's going to be our focus tonight. I'm calling it uh, Divine Beginning. And we'll take a look at that in just, uh, uh, just a little bit. Um, last week it was a little philosophical. We had a lot of philosophy. Uh, uh, this week it's a little more scientific. We're going to throw out a little more scientific stuff. A little easier for you to take notes. If you want to take notes um, tonight, feel free to, uh, to do so. However, as I've always offered, you can just send me an email and say notes, and I'll send you my uh, lecture notes. You can have it. If you want the slides, uh, ask for those. I'll give those to you, too. You can have either or or both or none, whatever you would uh, like to have. But this is going to be a little bit, uh, hopefully, a little easier for you to uh, remember some of the specifics uh, tonight. Uh, at least that's my, my intent. Well, let's begin, as we always do, by taking a look at Scripture. Every night, every, uh, all, all these uh, in our series, we're going to begin, we'll begin with a, an appropriate Scripture. Tonight, I'm going to read little pieces, little smidgets from Genesis chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 11. And it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be. The universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Let me get me a little sip of this water. In 2004, Something quite remarkable took place. The man, by the name of An uh, uh, Anthony, not Anthony, but Anthony Flew, who was a renowned, world-renowned philosophical atheist. In fact, he was the most prestigious and most respected atheist of the latter part of the 20th century and the beginning part of the 21st century. But in 2004, he made a profound statement. He came out and says, I'm no longer an atheist. I'm now confident there is a God. Not just a deity, but a real God who created the universe. Wow. Now, Anthony Flew was, he wrote dozens of books proclaiming there was no God. He had Tens of thousands of people who almost worshipped him as the, the premier speaker for atheism. And the whole atheistic movement was crushed by his pronouncement in 2004 that he no longer was an atheist, but now he was a believer in God. So what possibly could make him change his mind? Someone that committed, at that age too, by the way, was willing to abandon his life's work Someone who had lectured. I, I, I've heard several debates between uh, uh, Dr. Flew and, and Gary Habermas, someone I know very well, about the existence of God. I listened to him. I listened to him talk about these things back before he made his, his, his switch. And I said, well, this guy, you know, he's a committed atheist, you know. He's, he's never going to change. Well, he did. So what caused him to make that, that great change? What changed his mind? 
when he renounced his, his atheism based upon uh, the simple fact of a designer and a creator, when you take a look at the scientific evidence, it's overwhelming in his mind. So he switched from being philosophical about God to being factual about God. And when he became factual about God and looked at the scientific evidence that pointed to God, he could not deny the truth. There is a God. Here's what he said. He says, I confessed at that point that atheists have to be embarrassed by the contemporary cosmological consensus. For it seemed that the cosmologists were providing a scientific proof of what St. Thomas Aquinas had contended but could not prove philosophically. Namely, that the universe had a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, then it became entirely sensible, almost inevitable, to ask what produced this beginning. In the beginning, the universe was created by God. Wow. That's important. The fact that he changed his mind is important. Why do you think it's important? Why do you think it's important that Antony Flew went from being a renowned atheist to a dedicated theist? Theist means God believer. Why is that fact important? What do you think? Ah, his influence on his family, friends, people who knew him, and the whole world who knew about him. Very good, yeah. You see, if the world's most renowned and respected and committed atheist can believe in God based upon the facts that he saw, than anybody can. Anybody can. These facts must be profound. And that's what we want to do this evening is take a look at those facts, those things that point to the existence of God. So here's a question that's got to be answered. Why is there something rather than nothing at all? Key question. Why is this question so important? Why is there something rather than nothing at all? Why is the answer to that question so important? You don't have to give me the answer to the question. We're going to answer that as we go through this, this uh, study this evening. But why is the question important? What do you think? Why is it important? What's that? That's a good question. Does anything come from nothing? No, it doesn't. What's that? It means there's a purpose. Yeah, it means that there has to be something that started something, right? And there has to be a purpose for it. Absolutely. It's important because it forces you to consider the idea that there is a creator or a beginner, a cause for it all. To answer that question, you must investigate that. You have no choice. That's why that question is imperative, why it's important. There has to be something external, something external to us. But again, hmm, what is that? Where did it come from? Does it come from the cosmos? Does it come from an alien 
beings, you know, spaceships. There are some who believe that's where life came from. Or, or just maybe, maybe it came from a transcendent being, a God. Something outside of space and time and matter. Maybe. In the end, you see, it all comes down to that, that question. And it all comes down to the question about God. It all does. If there's something, then something caused it to be. And if the something caused it to be, then that something had purpose. Purpose in doing it. And he would design it to fulfill that purpose. Would he not? Absolutely. So in the end, to look at the design, you have to begin by looking at creation. And it all comes down to whether there is a beginner or creator who began it all. It all comes down to that. And if you take together this evidence of creation and combine it with the evidence of design, it provides a powerful and almost unchangeable logical testimony for God. So much so, it can take the world's most committed atheist and make him a believer in God. So that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to take a look and begin sort of a two-part thing. We're going to look at divine beginning, a look at the beginning of the universe and see how it points to the existence of God. The next week, we'll build on that and we'll do what I call design, divine design. We'll see how the design of the universe, design of creation, and how it points to the existence of God. And this testimony, together, is critical for understanding the purpose for existence. You see, unless there is a God, there is no purpose for anything. Nor would there be any value to anything either. Thus, God is necessary for anything to be. Absolutely necessary. It's illogical to say otherwise. If there was no God, there'd be no, no universe. So that's our starting point. For any apologetic discussion, starts with the establishment of the existence of God. Very important. Unless there's a God, there can be no valid faith. There can be no valid belief system. Unless there's a God, there can be no miracles. Jesus could not have been resurrection. resurrected. At best, he could only be a teacher. That's all he could possibly be. The Bible has no more value than any other teachings from any other faith system. Have no other meaning. Salvation has no meaning at all because if there's no God, then there's nothing to, for us to be saved from. Right? Every discussion about faith, and especially the Christian faith, begins with, centers around, and ends with God. This fact dominates the entire theme of the Bible. Us who are Bible people we, we have to know that. The dominant theme in the Bible is, I will be their God and they will be my people. That starts in the book of Genesis. It's carried all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, all the way to Revelation chapter 21 when it is ultimately fulfilled. That's the theme. There has to be a God or there's no purpose for anything. But what about those who don't believe in the Bible, don't believe the Bible is accurate, how do you convince them that there's a God? Well, that's what we're going to learn this evening. We're going to look at several demonstrated proofs for the existence of God that do not use the Bible. And they'll point to the existence of God. They'll point others 
to the existence of God. Just like they did Antony Flew. In fact, providing and proving the, uh, the existence of God from sources outside the Bible will val uh, validate the truth of the Bible and the accuracy of the Bible. It's a starting point. That's where you start. It's amazing how well it fits in. And we're going to take a look at the accuracy of the Bible and that sort of thing in a couple of weeks. So we must go back to our original question. Why is there something rather than nothing at all? This answer centers on what we call the cosmological argument. Woo. And that argument involves uh, the evidence that's pointing to the beginning of the universe. So when you look at that evidence for the beginning of the, the universe, when you examine it, then it'll demonstrate how God then, who transcends the universe, must have been its creator. That's the cosmological argument. It goes back for a, a long time, various, various versions of it. Most notable was a, was a theologian by the name of Thomas Aquinas from the uh, Middle Ages. I've read some of his work. Brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant man. But he developed one of the early developers of this cosmological argument. But he wasn't the only one, a mathematician, a scientist, Godfrey uh, Le Leibniz, I hope I'm saying that right, Lesmiz, I think he's German. Um, he developed his version of the cosmological argument. Even our Muslim friends got together, a group of them got together and, and put together an argument from an Islamic perspective, of course, for the evidence that points to the existence of God. Their version of the cosmological argument is called the Kalam um, cosmological ar ar uh, argument. But modern science has also done a lot to argue for the existence of God. This cosmological approach to, to, to proving God exists, modern science does that. In science, modern uh, uh, theologians and scientists have, have put this evidence together to show and demonstrate that Thomas Aquinas and all the others were right after all. They were all right. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take a look at some modern science things that point to that. And this, this argument consists of three aspects or, or concepts, if you will. First, and simply illustrated, it said that it says that everything that had a beginning, what? Had a beginner. So if something has a beginning, something caused it to begin. There was a beginner or some, some first cause, some cause that made it happen. And point two, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, what? The universe had a beginner. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the existence of the universe that's based upon this established concept called the law of causality. It's a scientific law. It's really a, a, a combination of philosophy and science that goes together. And the law of causality says this, that every event must have a cause. Nothing that has an event didn't happen without a cause. An event would be anything, right? could be anything, something that events, including something that has a beginning. That's an event. So therefore, it must have a, a beginner or a cause. The law of causality says something caused it to happen. Nothing just happened by itself. Okay? So if it had a cause, an event, a beginning, it had a cause. But if it didn't have a beginning, according to the law of causality, it didn't need a cause. So if there's no beginning, there's no need for a cause. So keep those two things in mind. 
If it had a beginning or an event, there was a cause. If it didn't have a beginning or an event, it did not necessarily need a cause. That's the law of causality. It's a very powerful law. It's never been questioned. It is and has always been a combination of philosophy and science together. It's a very important law. Francis Bacon, the father of modern science, says that true knowledge is known, or uh, the true knowledge is knowledge by causes. And even the uh, skeptic way back when, a philosopher by the name of David Hume, he accepted the law of causality when he wrote, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that something could arise without a cause. Law of causality. And my old buddy, theologian and philosopher, uh, Norm Geisler, he says, to deny the law of causality is to not deny rationality. So, the proof of causality is based on the irrefutable laws of logic that comes from God himself. You cannot refute it. And the laws of logic uh, point directly to the necessity of a God. It must be. Nothing else in all of existence is necessary. Nothing is necessary. Nothing. Only God is necessary. He is the first uncaused cause or beginner. And it's absolutely necessary for that uncaused cause or beginner to exist for there to be anything at all. It has to be. There must be a beginner cause, a first uncaused cause. And that uncaused cause is God. You got it. Thus the law of causality is absolute. And without this law, science is impossible. You can't have science without the law of causality. And to deny the law is to deny rationality. You can't even attempt to deny the law of causality without using the law. And if someone says they don't believe the law of causality, they don't believe that everything has to have a cause, what would you say to them? How would you answer that? What would you say? Don't look, don't look at my notes. You can't do that. No cheating. What would you say? There's no science? Well, I don't care. What would you say to him? It's a real easy, really, really easy retort. Well, yeah. Well, what, no, the thing is, that's, you're close. You're close. You say, someone says, well, I don't believe in causes. I don't believe in the law of causality. And you say, well, what caused you to reach that conclusion? You see? You have to have the law of causality to reach a conclusion. So if you conclude there is no law of causality, then you have used the law of causality. So what caused you? Well, the law did. It's irrefutable. If the universe had no beginning, then of course then it had no cause. However, everything points to the fact that the universe did have a beginning. So therefore it had a cause. Now we want to look at the evidence 
that points to the universe having a beginning. And we're going to look at tonight at five scientific principles that are based on the law of causality that demonstrate that the universe had a beginning. And therefore, it had a beginner, a cause. Let's take a look at these five. Number one, it's the law of the uh, the second law, excuse me, of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics. Any physicists in here? Who wants to help me out with that? You don't like physics. Well, who wants to tell me what the law of second, the second law of thermodynamics is? Uh, it's, you're, you're right. Actually, you're all right. Empathy. Entropy. Am I saying that right? Entropy. Yeah, that's what it is. It's sometimes called the law of en entropy in the universe. Exactly right. So what does that mean? Say it again. It degrades, yeah. As it replied to this uh, 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 law of physics, second law of thermodynamics, it means that in the universe, there's energy. And the energy that's in the universe is being used up. It's going away. It's disappearing. It's being used up. That's what the second law of thermodynamics is, one of the key laws of physics. And so, therefore, it points to the fact that the universe is being depleted. And therefore, it must have had a beginning. It's like the batteries in your flashlight or the batteries I have in here. How long do you say I have tonight? How many hours? I got 13 hours before this battery goes. There's good news and bad news. Good news is that I can go a long time. The bad news is it will eventually still run out. That's the thing. Energy in the universe is exactly the same thing. There's a fixed amount, and it's being used up. And at some point, it will be gone. Now, when you take the second law of thermodynamics and you put it together with the first law of thermodynamics, what is the first law? The first law is that, with, that the energy and matter within the universe is a closed system. In other words, it's, it's, it's set. No more energy coming in. No more energy can, can get in. What was started at the beginning is there, and that's all there is, and there will be no more. First law of thermodynamics. You take the first law, can be no more than what's here. It goes to the second law that says what here is being used up. That tells you what? There had to have a beginning. It had to start somewhere. And if the universe was eternal, like some scientists used to believe, what would, what would that mean with those two laws? Well, what would happen if these two laws are valid and everything shows that they are, it shows that what? If, if the universe was eternal, that means it's eternally old. That means it would have already been used up. We would have no more energy, and there would be no more us or anything in the universe. It would all be used up. But it isn't all used up. The sun still comes up in the morning, right? We still have energy. It may be being used up, and we know it's fixed, but it's still there. And so that means, absolutely, there has to have had a beginning to all of it. At some point, somewhere, something or somebody put it together and started it. It had to have had a beginning. That's what the law, second law of thermodynamics tells us. Wow. 
I like that. That's good stuff. Okay, the second thing. Oh, by the way, if it had a beginning and it's being used up, according to the second law of thermodynamics, what does that also tell you? It's going to have an end. Very good, yes. So we know it has a definite beginning. We know it has a definite end. Science tells us that. Hmm, interesting. Now, the second scientific principle we want to look at, remember, second law of thermodynamics, number one. Number two, we know from science that the universe must have, uh, have been caused by something because it is expanding. Do you know that? The universe isn't fixed. It's expanding. There was a time when it didn't exist. And then, according to science, it began somehow. It just sort of, boom, blew into existence. In a nanosecond, it has been expanding ever since. It's like a balloon. If you take a balloon, say a black balloon, and you paint little white dots like the represent stars, and you blow it up, what happens? It gets bigger, right? What happens to the dots? They get bigger, but something else, they get further apart. So if something is getting further apart, then it is expanding. That's a scientific principle. That's what this principle means, the um, expanding universe. There was a time then that it must not have existed. It must not have existed. Since the stars and the galaxy are growing further apart and growing from each other, then we, we know the universe is expanding from a single point, a single beginning. So there must have been a time when the universe didn't exist. It started from nothing and it began to expand. And it, but here's the thing. It's not expanding into, expanding into space. The balloon is the space. So if it's expanding... It's expanding into nothing. Space is what's expanding. The universe is what's expanding. It's expanding into nothingness. That's what we know and how we know that it must have had a beginning. We also know from that that it has a specific size, right? It's expanding, but it's a, it's, it's a dimension that we can measure. It is a size as well. So it's growing, just like, just like the balloon, expanding into nothingness. Therefore, uh, before the beginning, there was nothing. And if it's expanding, then there was a time was reversed. You take the air out of that balloon, what happens? It collapses back to nothing. That's how we know. The universe had a beginning, has a specific size. And this shift was discovered by observing the shift in color from blue to red in relation to Earth things with things that are further apart. And by that shift in color, scientists could tell that, wait a minute, it is expanding. It's not a fixed amount over time. This is called the red shift. So two principles already. Second law of thermodynamics and the universe that's expanding. Remember that, those two. Okay, the third one was discovered in 1965, quite by accident, actually. And it's called the radiation echo. Technically, it's called the cosmic background radiation. And what it is is an afterglow of light and heat from the initial creation of the universe. It's nothing more than an echo of the initial creation event. If something blew into existence, that creates an echo, a radiation echo. And that's what they discovered in 1965. That's how they know the universe had a beginning. It provides evidence that the universe had a distinct beginning and came into existence by a very powerful initial action of some sort. An event. Whew, wait a minute. If it has an event, what does it got to have? 
vision of an event, there's what? There's a beginner. There's a cause. Yeah. So three, uh, we've got three things. Second law, thermodynamics. Universe is expanding. Radiation echo. Number four. Scientists discovered in 1992 that there's a great mass of galaxies that resulted from a slight variations in the initial event of forming the universe. They call these great galaxy seeds. And these variations are ripples in the temperature of the cosmic background radiation. It's like when you throw a stone in a pond, and how you see the ripples? Well, these are ripples in the, the temperature in the universe, in the radiation of the universe. There's variations in this, temp uh, uh, in this temperature. And they know then that these, these, are this, oh, these ripples show that there's a, uh, an explosion and an expanse of the universe that was very precisely tweaked, caused just enough matter to congregate that allowed galaxies to form, just, just the right amount. If it was any more, too much or too less, the universe would collapse back on itself. It's just a perfect amount to cause all the galaxies in the whole universe to form, the matter to form out of energy. Wow. The universe had a distinct beginning, and it's been expanding ever since. And this discovery caused astronomer George Smoot to make this statement. He says, if you're religious, when you're studying this and looking at this, it's like looking at God. That's an actual quote. Okay, so we have four. Second law, universe expanding, radiation echo, galaxy seeds. Okay? Remember those. The last one we want to look at is Einstein's theory of general relativity. And this theory demands that there's an absolute beginning for time, space, and matter. And they're all interdependent. They cannot be one without the others. You must have all three according to Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein. But when Einstein developed his theory, Einstein was a crazy guy. He's a crazy dude, I'm just telling you. He is just a crazy dude. But when he developed his, his theory, it was a mathematical calculation, it didn't give him the answer that he wanted. He was very disappointed because his calculation pointed to the fact that there had to have been a beginning to the universe. And he was already convinced that there could not be a beginning. The universe was self-existent and eternal. And so he couldn't accept his own work. So you know what he did? He added what he called a constant to his formula. Most people refer to it as a fudge factor. He added that in there so that the formula would give him what he wanted it to say. Because he didn't like the original formula. Interestingly, other scientists working with his discovery and his work and his theories came back and said, but Dr. Einstein, you were right the first time. This fudge factor doesn't belong there. Your formula gives, gives us everything that we need. It's the truth. And when Einstein was invited by his friend to an observatory in California to look through this huge telescope and to be able to see this red shift that we talked about, then as a physicist, he knew what? That the universe was expanding. And he knew that his original calculation was 100% correct. And he took out his fudge factor. He didn't know that, that uh, Einstein was actually a theist. A lot of people like to say he was an atheist. 
He was not an atheist, not after that. So here's the thing. Einstein's theory of general relativity stands today as one of the strongest lines of evidence for the existence of God. It stands together with all these other lines of evidence, the expanding universe, the radiation afterglow, the great galaxy seeds uh, uh, added to the second uh, law of thermodynamics, and they tell us that the universe had a beginning. So here's what we can surmise from these five scientific principles. The universe had a distinct beginning. It has ific size, and it has a definitive ending. Wow. That doesn't sound like something that happened as an accident, does it? And it's easy to remember these five principles and how they relate to the creation event. Simply like this. Remember this. In the beginning, God spoke, and there was a great surge. And that's what it is. Surge is an acronym. S stands for what? Second law of thermodynamics. U stands for? Universe is expanding. Got to remember the spell. <laughs> R, the R for surge stands for radiation echo. And the G stands for great galaxy seeds. And then the last E stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. Just remember that. In the beginning, God spoke and there was a great surge. And these five principles of science based upon the law of causality points directly to the existence of of God. Wow. Isn't that something? So there's scientific evidence that points to a beginning and a cause of the universe. But here's the thing. Was this cause personal or impersonal? Was it something that just sort of happened? Or was something personal made it happen? And this is where reason takes over. You've got to add a little reason to this. If the universe had a beginning and everything from theology philosophy, and science points to that fact, then it must have had what? A beginner. Law of causality makes that, makes that an absolute. So here's the truth. Either, either nothing created something out of nothing or something created something out of nothing. Which is the more reasonable statement? You've got to believe one or the other's. One of, it, one of those two statements you've got to believe. What's the more reasonable thing to believe? Yeah. See, if, you, if you're committed to a non-supernatural worldview, then you're trapped into accepting the least reasonable answer for the overwhelming evidence that's offered by reason and science. You got yourself painted into a corner. So it comes back to the real question that we started with. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? Since the universe had a beginning, then space and time and matter had a beginning. Therefore, they must have had what? A beginner. A first, uncaused, self-existent, uh, self all-powerful, all-knowing, personal cause who intentionally caused all things to come into existence. And who could do that? Who could possibly that person be? That thing, that entity. Who? Any ideas? 
How about God? Yeah, how about God? Even well-known agnostic scientists struggle with this obvious conclusion. Look at what ast uh, astronomer Robert Jastrow said. He's a professing agnostic, by the way. Look what he said. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements of the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Wow. What a conclusion. That's the exact same conclusion that Antony Flew came to by looking at the exact same evidence. Wow. When reason is applied, the scientific evidence points to a supernatural cause for the universe. Even science can't deny the fingerprints of God. Cannot. Contemporary apologist and author of the case for Christ and the case for faith, and, and by the way, a former atheist, Lee Strobel, he summed it up very well. It goes like this. He says, to continue in atheism, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. And he sums it up by saying, I simply don't have that much faith. It takes far more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in God. So one last question before we close tonight. Who made God? Interesting question, isn't it? Who made God? What caused God to exist? Several years ago, I was preaching a sermon in a church up in the North Carolina mountains, and I was preaching it on this subject. It was a sermon, not a lecture like this is, but it was, but it was uh, about the same thing, the evidence for God and, and this sort of thing. And I'm up here talk, preaching away, and out here in the congregation, there was this little boy, I don't know, 9 or 10 years old, maybe 11. And I'm doing my best not to cut, to cut, you know, make eye contact with him. I don't want to recognize him. I'm preaching my sermon. So I never acknowledged him. After the sermon, I'm making my way out of the church, and people are saying, oh, thank you for coming. Good sermon. Oh, wow, it's really interesting. And I get near the front door, and right in the middle of the doorway stood that kid. There was no way he was going to let me out of that church. I said, okay, well, here we go. We'll see what's on his mind. I said, hey, young man, good morning. Can I help you with something? He says, well, you're up there preaching and saying that, you know, everything was started by God, that God created it all out of nothing. Well, then, who made God? And he wasn't being facetious or he wasn't being malicious or mean. I think he really wanted to know, who made God? So, that's my question for you. Who made God? How did God come into existence? How would you answer that question? Yeah? Anyone, anyone, but anyone want to take it on? Anybody want to take some idea? Yes, sir. Speak up so I can hear you. It's not a real question? Why? Oh! You're saying God cannot, you cannot apply infinite regress to the concept of God. Philosophical term, infinite regress. 
I mean, you go back infinite uh, for infant, uh, inf go back to infinity. Yeah, we go. Yeah, good answer. Yeah. Anybody else want to take a stab? Very good. That's very good. Knocking on, not only knocking on the door, you actually got your foot in it. Very good. Remember the law of causality. What does that tell you? Exactly. Nothing caused God to exist because he did not have a beginning. Remember? There was no event. He's eternal. He did not need a cause. He's always existed. He is necessary for everything else to exist. And everything that we can see or examine in the entire universe points to that fact. That's the purpose of what I wanted you to learn here this evening. Science and rationality and everything points to the fact that there is a first uncaused cause. Well, you cannot say, it is really not a question to say, who made God? Because it's, it is irrational. Because God did not have a beginning. So he didn't need a cause. He just is. And because he is, we, we exist. The universe exists. Without him, there would be nothing. So why is there something rather than nothing at all? Because there's a God. That's why. And there cannot, you cannot answer that question without coming to the agreement that God exists. What's that? That's, yeah, basically fewer words than that. But yeah, that's what I told the boy. So here's the thing. It includes design as well. For if God caused everything, and we know that he did. That's what we've been talking about. We showed you the scientific evidence for it. Then he must have had a purpose for doing so. And therefore, he would have designed it in a special way, would he not? So that he could fulfill that purpose. From the distance, most distant galaxy to the very smallest component of life you will find a reflection of that design and that purpose. And that's what we're going to examine next week. We're going to tie the two together. Look at this first uncaused cause we know is God who's necessary for anything to exist and take a look at his purpose for it through his design. Thanks for letting me share this evening. I'll uh, turn it over to the pastor. And if you have questions before he comes up quickly, ask me now or later or if your neighbor's asleep, time to wake them up. What's that? Infinite regress. Infinite regress. That means you cannot regress. Go back to, for eternity to an infinite amount of times. There had to be a, a first uncaused cost. Or there would be nothing at all.